Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we have two guests on the show, and we're going to talk about utopian Utopia, excuse me, or Oblivion, Futurism and War Games. And I find this topic really interesting. This is based on a project and a report that the authors and designers are on the show to talk to us about today. And it's really, really interesting. It's a completely different topic, um, not something that we've talked about before on the Loopcast, I don't think. And if we have, maybe it was a long time ago, but in a completely different context. So I'm excited to talk about this. The report is titled Utopia or Oblivion, an examination of war games and futurism, how games can contribute and best practices for doing so. And today we have David Gardenstein Ross on the show and Madison Urban. And for our listeners, David is the founder and chief executive officer of Balance Global. He is also a senior advisor on asymmetric warfare at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and an associate fellow at the International Center for Counterterrorism in The Hague. And then Madison is also at Valens Global as an analyst, and she's contributed towards the simulation practices at Valens Global, along with working on projects related to domestic terrorism. So first of all, welcome to the show, David and Madison. Thanks so much, Chelsea. It's great to to join you. And um, here at the outset, I'd like to to congratulate you on your successes. Um, You know, we were just... uh, prior to coming on air, talking about the Loopcast's uh, history and how you've been running this now for um, about a decade and have been able to make it into this great national security institution. Um, I think you started it when you were an intern. Is that right, in D.C.? I, um, I did with Sina. He was, I think, also doing internships at the time, way back when, as time flies. <laughs> yeah, no, but, and and now, you know, about a decade later, um you're uh, an up and coming young scholar. Uh, I've seen you on all these different panels and uh, I'm really proud to see um, you getting more of a podium uh, out there. And to me, that makes it special that, that, that I'm able to say that this is uh, Maddie Urban's very first podcast interview because she's also someone who um, is definitely up and coming. Um, you know, I hired her about a year ago um, when she graduated from uh, UNC. Uh, she graduated a year early and um, is uh, you know one of the uh, very best young analysts I've had the pleasure of working with. So it's it's great to be able to have this report to be being her first time uh, that she's able to um, be on a podcast. And I can think of no better podcast than the Loopcast to introduce her to the world. Oh, well, that's pretty awesome because that pretty much is how the Loopcast was founded. We wanted to give a platform to young, up-and-coming, great minds, scholars, analysts, and so forth. So I'm so glad to have you on the show, Madison, as well, just like um, David just said. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity, and I'm excited to be here. 
So why don't we talk about this report, this game, this project? Like I said, going through the report, it's so interesting. And it, it reading it brought to mind, of course, really important issues that we need to tackle potentially that take place in the future and how, how to do that. But also all the futuristic movies I've seen, it, it like brought up so many interesting thoughts. So why don't we just start off with how this study and report came about? Absolutely. Um, it's it's funny because there's so many different ways I could frame the story, but um, we've had, uh, Valence has a wargaming practice that we're really proud of. Um, And it's a wargaming practice where we do something that I think is very different than any other firm in the wargaming space. And I know we'll get into what wargames are um, uh, soon, uh, but to give kind of a, a brief introduction to what they are, Um, A game is characterized by the fact that it's bound by rules where people represent teams in, you know, the policy context might be teams like the U.S. Department of Justice, the Russian Federation, Google or Meta, um, you know, a branch of the Canadian government, things like that. Those are the sorts of teams that will inhabit our games. Um, And what we've done differently is invested significantly in world building. Again, there's kind of a whole backstory to how um, our games came to be what they are today. But world building is what makes something seem real. It's what makes you invested beyond the fact that you're playing a game. Um, it creates layers where the more you play, the more you engage, the more you learn about the world, and the more you understand that there are little clues where not everything is exactly as it seems on the surface. Because as we know, that's exactly what the real world is like. Not everything is what it appears to be on the surface. And the more you dig in, the more you're able to get out. We want to create worlds like that, where people want to spend time and want to engage. So um, I really value uh, my relationship and balances with the Canadian Department of National Defense. They've uh, funded a number of projects that we're really proud of. And... um, Increasingly, we've been looking to, um, you know, as they put out uh, RFPs, we've been pitching um, games to them because uh, we've found that they resonate with their audience. There's a little bit that needs to be done in terms of of, um, building more time for their players to play. Uh, Right now, it sort of functions as an extracurricular, whereas we're working with D&D to get it reshaped as a training exercise for the participants. Um, But it's this alternative uh, analytic methodology that makes every subject much more three-dimensional, much more tactile, which I like. It, it, it's in contrast to the way, for example, you know, a, a panel discussion will go. And you and I, Chelsea, have, have spent plenty of time on panels, and there's nothing against a panel discussion. But for a panel discussion, you know, all the ideas are what they are in debate, right? Like they're they're two-dimensional. Um, you might be debating somebody and trying to make the strongest case possible. You might even be picking something up and trying to look at it from multiple angles, but you're not immersed in the thing. Instead, there's you're removed from the topic that you're talking about. Whereas for you know, whatever the idea is that you're considering in a game, you're going to be immersed in it and have to make decisions about it, which will have an impact in the game world. And that creates a different mechanism of engagement and also creates, um, I think it's a little bit more democratic in that 
more people are able to participate than could in any panel discussion. And as we talk about games, I'll talk about that a little bit more because we've used our games recently for institutions like the Global Counterterrorism Forum um, to um, basically provide an alternative way to get at toolkits, to get at good practices documents and the like, which I'm really proud of. And I think um, you know, has enough potential that there will continue to be investments in, in them into the future. So that's how it came about, a um, you know, long-standing relationship with the Canadian Department of National Defense. And this was a project that we, we pitched to them as both a game uh, that would look at how uh, futurism, uh, the, the, the study of alternative futures could be enhanced through the practice of wargaming, along with an accompanying study, which looked at good practices for doing so. And I think what you said about learning in a different way versus maybe reading a report or watching a panel is that immersive learning. And as you said, this type of analysis and, and game really does immerse people in the research and in the possible ways of going about things. And I think that's fantastic um, because immersive learning, I feel like you really absorb it more because you're part of it. So I think that type of research is really, speaking of futurism, kind of the way of the future almost. Well, th thanks so much, Chelsea. I, I really appreciate that. And I mentioned there's a little bit of a backstory there. So I'll, I'll provide it here just um, in order to queue up the, um, as we move into what futurism is and the report is, um, which I know is where Maddie is going to come in. But I, I, I first started to use games as a pedagogical tool when I was teaching at Georgetown in their security studies program. Um, one thing I really valued about SSP is that when you're you know, a first year adjunct, you get you, you actually get kind of surprised slash bombarded um, by um, reviews from your students, I think like three or four weeks into the semester. And uh, when I was teaching my first class there, um, you know, I, I, I got my first set of like three weekend or four weekend reviews. And um, yeah, they were mediocre. I mean, at the end of the day, the class was, um, you know, it, it ended up being one of the most popular classes they had at the time. But in, in kind of stepping back and reading through the reviews, which often, you know, contradicted one another, I realized that what all the students had in common is that they were looking for something that was much more tactile, much more three-dimensional, which made me think, you know, games are really the way to get at what they're looking at. And, um, you know, uh, we started running our games uh, outside of, you know, the, um, as, as a Valens thing, not as a David thing, um, when I met with Mark Stout from Johns Hopkins University. Um, I was introduced to him by Ryan Evans of War on the Rocks. And um, I was telling him about this post 9-11 simulation I was running for my class. And he asked if I could do that for his global security studies program at JHU. And, you know, a few years into running um, the JHU game, which was usually, it started out as a simulation, just like everyone else does a simulation. It was just about the thing itself. I introduced this character. <laughs> it was like the first character I'd built for a simulation for whatever reason, um, who was, uh, he, he was um, a Pakistani uh, major who would later execute a coup and, you know, elevate himself to five-star general. And I, I based him off of uh, Kanye West, 
this is back before um, back before the 2016 elections. And um, I even I think I named him Major Kanye, uh, which is just like this nod to the fact that it was just Kanye West. He talked about himself in the third person and was like always talked about how he was a genius. It was like, I, but what I found was that people, the character just resonated with people. Um, it was what people remembered the most about the game, which started me on on thinking about how um, you know it's characters and it's stories that really resonate much more so than there being a game or there just being action. So I strongly agree with you about, about this being um, a tool uh, of the future. And I, I'm proud to say that today, like several years later, we're now running games routinely for universities, either as standalone courses or as part of um, other uh, for credit classes. So we have um, you know, both Duke University and Carnegie Mellon. Um, we have run... Um, games uh, as standalone classes. I'm actually, just after uh, we conclude this interview, uh, I'm going to be heading up to Pittsburgh to conclude our Carnegie Mellon game. And, um, you know, it's very routine when we run it either as part of a class or as a standalone class that um, in the reviews, students will often talk about how this is the most profound experience of their undergraduate or their graduate education. And that makes me really proud of it as um, it was an educational tool, but there's definitely much more to it um, going beyond just just education. I mean, not that education is trivial, but it's just one mode of engagement. Um, there's also modes of engagement for uh, companies, for example, preparing for ransomware attacks, which is one game that we're um, going to be running soon after we're done with this podcast. Um, and um, uh, other modes of engagement are analytic modes of engagement. So to me, especially in the 21st century, which is very fast moving, very unpredictable, alternative means of analysis that, often, that, that open us up to the realm of the possible and make us engage in much more of an immersive way rather than a removed way, I think are very important and are going to only increase in importance. Why don't we talk about the field of future studies? Because as I said, reading this part of me starts thinking about some of these futuristic movies and different books I've read, and it really gets your mind into this other world. But there is a strong basis in future studies based on the analysis and the game that you created. Yeah, so it's an interesting question because there's a significant amount of disagreement among futurists about the definition and the practice of futurism and the future studies movement more broadly. Uh, We chose to define futurism as the exploration of what could be that is undertaken for the purpose of shaping what will be. So rather than assuming continuity that the future will be similar to the present, futurists contend consider a range of challenges and opportunities that are presented by various trends and technologies and changing societal values. Futurism is not primarily focused on accurately predicting the future, and in fact, futurists often use the plural futures to emphasize that their focus is on exploring a range of possibilities, what is often called forecasting, rather than predicting exactly what will occur. And so futurism and prediction should not be conflated in in part because the act of forecasting itself can catalyze a change that moves you towards or away from a specific outcome. 
And in this way, futurism can function somewhat like epidemiology in which an accurate projection about the potential spread of a virus could catalyze an intervention that's designed to impede the virus's spread that actually renders the initial prediction inaccurate. And so with kind of that broad definition in mind, uh, there, there are numerous futurists, as I said, that have contributed to this field. Um, and our intention in writing this study was not to oversimplify any of the nuances between the practices of, future, of futurism, but we chose to focus on two primary methodologies advocated for by Edward Cornish and Jim Dater to be sort of representatives of, of two camps within futurism that are of particular value to war game designers. So Edward Cornish, uh, who founded the World Future Society in 1966, developed what we choose to call the scenario method, which places a relatively greater emphasis on the accuracy of projection. His scenario method looks at five different scenarios about the future. He considers a surprise-free scenario, optimistic scenario, pessimistic disaster, and a scenario in which some sort of transformation happens. In each of these scenarios, they focus on projecting out the same set of variables and forecasting the same trends across all five. After forecasting these possibilities, the scenario method examines the conditions under which each scenario could become a reality and assigns probabilities or likelihood statements to each. And so there's an ability to run a sort of cost benefit analysis with a greater understanding of a variety of futures than a narrow look at uh, one or maybe two possibilities. Cornish's conception of futurism inherently connects these prescriptive and descriptive aspects of futurism. He advocates assigning conceptions of good or bad uh, to enable decision makers to better move towards an image that they like or understand the danger of a possible negative future. And so you can understand why Cornish would place more of an emphasis on the accuracy of these projections. On the other hand, Jim Dater, who was the former director of the Hawaii Research Center for Future Studies, proposes a value-neutral futurism. His alternative futures methodology emphasizes developing a more robust understanding of what is possible and exploring what these possibilities mean rather than focusing on ensuring the accuracy of these forecasts. For Dater, the, the primary value of futurism is the act of futuring itself. And so he proposes that there are four basic images of the future that, as you said, run through futurist movies and books and our own conceptions of the future. So he talks about uh, a scenario of future growth that's primarily concerned with economics, collapse either environmentally or societally, uh, a disciplined society of kind of a, a reverting back to more traditional values and transformation that's fueled by technology. Under his alternative futures framework, these four images should be projected out to create really robust images of what the world would look like, and then to be turned into scenarios to be explored and experienced. And this is one of the primary goals that Dater articulates in running a four futures exercises. He says that he wants, and I, and I quote, to have people experience at least one future substantively different than the present to enable them to question the default assumption that the future is simply the present extended and amplified. 
like I said, Dater believes that over the long term, none of the scenarios are necessarily more or less likely. And there's not one that's intrinsically good. Each has positive and negative consequences. And so he places a particular emphasis on including a diverse range of participants to better understand how futures could be conceived of differently. Now, both Cornish and Data are trying to make present or to make to understand the present to create images of the future, but they want to broaden decision makers' view of these possible realities, and they just have different methodologies and primary end goals that set them apart. And on that point, so I mean, just hearing what you said. I can come up with a lot of things in my head why this would be important to look at futurism for defense planners and decision makers. But I want to hear on your end and perspective why this is such an important way of analyzing different potential scenarios and issues that come up in the future. I think there are, as you said, multiple, but I think there are two primary reasons that, that futurism is important to decision makers, particularly in our current context. For one, I think Dater's quote um, that futurism is a check against de the default assumption that the future is simply the present extended and amplified is one of the main reasons that futuring is important. A desire for certainty about what is next or the assumption that life will go on as it has is understandable but it leaves little room to understand or prepare to, for shocks to the system. Um, and, and in our world where the rate of change is rapidly accelerating, this assumption of continuity is particularly damaging. One of my favorite parts of writing this study was a conversation that David and I had with Jaris Grove, who took over Jim Dater's practice at the University of Hawaii. Um, and in our conversation, he said that we are leaving a period of relative stability and entering into a period of extreme turbulence. Many major powers, both state and non-state actors, are convinced that rapid innovation or disruptive change is in their strategic interest. And this incapacitates long-term trend analysis because so many people are by, def by definition invested in not following the trend. And so in that context, the practice of futurism of exploring multiple possibilities is extremely important. Learning to think about the future to challenge assumptions and to consider possibilities builds more resilience and adaptive capacity than a binder of predictions that when a major change occurs becomes entirely useless. And so secondly, I think we, we need images to move towards a desired future or away from a feared one. When we have an image that we like, we take steps to move towards it. As I was reflecting on the study and getting ready for this podcast, it, it brought to mind um, the power of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. The, the central message of that speech is he has an image of the future, a beautiful image of the future, and he uses a discussion of that image to motivate action to try and make that dream become a reality. And in a way, that's what futurism and future studies is trying to do. It's creating images of the future that we want to move towards and then shining light on the images of the future that we, we don't want to move towards and creating processes to allow us to take steps to move towards or away from this understanding of a greater possible future. After hearing about this, how can we incorporate futurism with war games and 
why focus on war games specifically? Sure. So I know David talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the podcast, but uh, first let me define war games a little bit so that we're all on the same page. When I first came to Valens, this was a new topic for me and I was a little bit confused about what we were talking about. So despite their name, war games don't necessarily or exclusively deal with warfare or battle plans. They're not necessarily militaristic. Um, but war games are a type of simulation in which human players are immersed in a scenario. They make decisions and they react to the consequences of their decisions and the decisions of others in the game environment. There's a variety of literature on the psychological impact of games. But one thing that I would highlight here is that, that games activate kind of two cognitive processes, the automatic and system, systematic systems to formulate a synthetic experience. When we read a book or watch a movie, our automatic system will first process information. But even for the greatest works of literature, our brain knows that the story isn't actually happening. The reader, the moviegoer doesn't impact the story. And so while book learning can be deeply informative and build knowledge, it doesn't engage the deeper cognitive processes. And the war game and the world building processes that David talked about at the beginning help overcome this disbelief because participants act on the information that they receive in the game environment. And the brain is forced to act as if it is in the real world. And so games create this synthetic experience, overcome the brain's disbelief and unlock deeper cognitive processes that teach participants in a way that few exercises or sources of fiction or books ever could. And so we've chosen, and the futurist field has chosen to really look at games as a, a means of making these images of the future really come to life in a way that engages deeper cognitive processes. And when creating war games, what methods go into the creation of them to make them as precise as possible? Or do we want them to even be precise? Is it more offering different experiences to see outcomes? Like describe this a bit. So I'll handle this one. Um, I think that if you look at precision in a couple of different ways, one is precision of the scenario that's presented in the game. And then the second is precision of um, how things uh, are adjudicated once uh, the, um, uh, basically once the stereo has been set. And I think for the first part, um, precision of the scenario, I'm not as concerned that the scenario be precise. Um, there's this quite, great quote from uh, Jim Dater, and actually, you know, when you heard me stumble verbally a second ago, it was me looking up that quote. Um, his quote is, any useful idea about the futures should appear to be ridiculous. Um, in other words, if we're talking about the future and it seems to flow naturally from the present, it's probably just not accurate because a lot of different things a lot of our assumptions are going to be disrupted and you can do any sort of time series and um, easily see kind of the way uh, our assumptions about the future are constantly getting disrupted. Um, you know, if you do a time series um, from uh, say, <laughs> we talked about when we just, when we first met Chelsea 2011, right? 
2011 was a time when there is this massive optimism about the role of social media in the world. We'd just seen the Arab Spring revolutions, um, and it was thought of as this you know, democratic force for change. And now if we look forward um, you know, to uh, the 2016 elections, to, to just where we are now as a deeply divided and polarized society, you have much more criticism now of the role that social media is playing um, in, in the United States and in the world. If you go back to, say, you know, five years before that to 2006, social media wouldn't even be on the radar as an important force politically at all in any place of the world. Uh, you know, Twitter um, hadn't yet been um, stood up as such. Uh, that's just one small example. There's you know, thousands of other ways that our ideas about the future are constantly getting disrupted. So I think that for the first part, the scenario, um, I believe that you should have a compelling scenario. Now, there are ways to make sure that within that, there are certain aspects that get modeled uh, realistically. Um, one thing that we have as an appendix to our report is um, a forecasting type method. Uh, this would be uh, associated more uh, with Cornish um, in what Maddie outlined. We have a forecasting type method um, looking at possible uh, future impacts of climate change. That's one thing that we model out for a lot of our different games. And we have it either as at the forefront or in the background of certain things going on in the game. But other than that, um, I like to look at different trend lines and look at, at how might they intersect with each other in interesting ways. To me, having um, an interesting scenario, which is realistic, but also very forward leaning is more important than having a precise scenario. But then when we get to precision or accuracy, I think that's, you know, that needs to occur within the adjudication. In other words, even within this world that may seem somewhat far-fetched, you have to make sure that the results of moves are realistic. And um, that comes down to good refereeing methodology, um, having um, a game that's bound by rules in a way where you won't have unrealistic outcomes from what teams do. Uh, so those are the two different ways that I would look at precision and, I, and, and would say that it matters, right? It's not so much precision in terms of what are the scenarios, because there really we should use our imagination as much as possible, but it's precision in the adjudication and making sure that what happens in the world feels realistic to the players. So why don't we actually get into the bits and pieces of the war games balance created? So why don't we talk about the timeframes, the structure, how it was conducted, overreaching goals, and things like that? Yeah. So this for uh, this project, the game we uh, ran is called Utopia or Oblivion, which is uh, a nod to Buckminster Fuller. Uh, there's a Buckminster Fuller book published around 50 years ago, uh, which is titled Utopia or Oblivion. And I felt like it um, really exemplified what we were going for in this game. So I um, just used the title as, as a nod to him and his work. For those who aren't familiar with Buckminster Fuller, he's one of the um, kind of tower, you know, truly one of the towering intellects of the 20th century and is very much worth at least looking up on Wikipedia. Um, so Utopia or Oblivion, um, had you know, one real innovation, and I think the rest was kind of 
within the bounds of of normal games, albeit with a um, you know very intensely crafted media environment based on a, a lot of uh, detailed world building. But it began five years out from when we were running it. We were running this in um, twenty early twenty twenty one, and so it began in twenty twenty six. And the big innovation within the game is that midway through the game, it took a 10-year leap forward. Um, so as we were designing it, we, we talked about this as being the plus five world, five years in the future, and the plus 15 world, 15 years in the future. Teams knew that there was going to be a 10-year jump in the middle of the game. And what that meant was that at, in the first half of the game, all of the teams needed to make decisions that had an impact in both the short term and the long term. Uh, I've noticed uh, running, you know, designing and running and playing in a variety of war games that we tend to um, force or make decisions that only have short-term consequence because most games are time-bound. They occur over a matter of months or at most a matter of years. Whereas if you have this massive 10-year leap forward, suddenly you understand that that's coming and you need to make decisions with short-term and long-term consequences. Um, and within the game, there were a few different storylines that were, were most important. One of them was climate change. Uh, one of them was the use of uh, technologies um, by violent non-state actors. And then the third one was shifting uh, conceptions of sovereignty uh, with, by the time the plus 15 world had arrived, the um, advent of something that we call microstates, which are uh, states, like new quasi-sovereign entities that are enabled by um, unprecedented levels of mobility, uh, ability to organize digitally, um, and to create new ways of political organizing that the world really has not experienced before. And how is it conducted? Did you have a set of participants? Um, yeah, discuss that a bit for us. Yeah, we had a set of participants. Um, it, this is um, what I'm going to describe is kind of the typical way that most of our games, though not all of them, uh, are run, but Utopia or Oblivion falls within um, this uh, method of, of running games. So it was co-sponsored by the Canadian Department of National Defense and also Johns Hopkins University. Um, there were seven different teams represented in Utopia or Oblivion. Two of them were teams representing parts of the Canadian government. Uh, there was a Google team. There was a Mexico team. Um, there was uh, um, a, a team representing the United States. Um, seven teams uh, in total. There's one team that was based on uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross, though after like spending a long time uh, getting to learn how ICRC enters conflicts and makes decisions, we had to actually change the name and fictionalize it because they're very protective of their branding and didn't want us to use it in the game, which which was fine. Um, I think that we we pretty accurately represented how ICRC would enter into a conflict zone, only it wasn't called ICRC. Um, but in advance of the game, um, there were two different... Uh, basically sponsors who would reach out to participants. At Johns Hopkins, we have, uh, you know, we've been running games for them for you know, over half a decade now, and we have a pretty standard way of doing it. The uh, director of the Global Security Studies Program 
will uh, push out um, an invitation. People will register online. Um, and then for the Department of National Defense, they would also uh, reach out to gather players. DND, the Canadian Department of National Defense, wanted to make sure that their players who were professionals didn't end up on graduate school uh, student-dominated teams, though they wanted to make sure there were graduate students on their teams. So we made sure that the two Canadian teams were dominated by DND with only a few graduate students on them. And then um, the rest of the world was the inverse, where teams were dominated by graduate students, maybe with a DND player or two. In signing up for the game, people would rank their top three choices of teams that they'd want to be on. And we'd always be able to connect people with at least one of their top three choices um, out of the seven teams. Um, and then the gameplay um, occurs somewhat asynchronously. Uh, we're, we're, we're switching it now to make it a little bit more synchronous. But essentially for this game, uh, I gave three briefings. I gave an opening briefing to the game. Um, I gave a, brief, a briefing when the 10-year forward jump occurred. And then I gave a final briefing at the very end. And in between that, um, you know, there were a total of, of, I think, five different turns. And you know, each turn, a new turn occurs after teams have submitted their moves. There's a method for submitting moves and also submitting uh, the results of your negotiations. Uh, you're limited to, uh, in this game, you, teams are limited to three moves per turn. And then a new turn posts when the information environment is updated, including each team getting uh, new sets of memoranda, um, and learning about what's going on in the game world as kind of a definitive period of time has passed and they're in a new period of time. I forget exactly how long each um, turn lasted, but it was a matter of months up until the 10-year forward jump in time. Uh, and that allowed them to make decisions that were of the moment, but decisions that were also um, you know, forward-leaning looking to that 10 year forward time jump. So that's basically how it occurred. It's a turn-based game um, with you know, participants coming from both DND and also Johns Hopkins separated out into um, a variety of teams that deliberate, make moves and negotiate with one another to try to reach arrangements that will advance their interests and advance them towards their victory conditions in the game world. Sounds really interesting. When going through the report, you decided to base the game on three trends that you said would shape the future in important ways. These were climate change, the weaponization of new and emerging technologies by sub-state actors, and also shifting conceptions of sovereignty. I wanted to talk about this a bit, why these three trends were picked as possible options, and how they were also implemented into the game. So in terms of how we picked them, um, you know, this actually is, is how I design the plot for most games that we run, um, at least when they're what I call crafted games. We run two different kinds of games. There's crafted games and competitive games. And for competitive games, um, there's a lot we do to set up the scenario, but it's really the teams um, grappling with one another and trying to get a leg up on one another that determines really the thrust of the gameplay and, and hence the thrust of the plot. A crafted game, um, you know, there's much, there's much more of a built out world um, that's going to progress somewhat linearly unless there's a move that really surprises us. So this is more of a crafted game. And for all the crafted games, I will um, typically look at three different trends that I feel intersect with each other thematically in some important way. 
Um, it's often non-obvious, but then when you kind of step back and look at, at what's happening in the world, it can become a little bit more obvious when you zoom out how they relate to one another. So in, in this game, it, it's about how the way that we live in the world and how we organize is going to shift significantly in a relatively short period of time, and certainly lightning fast uh, historically. Uh, cl- you know, climate change is an obvious one. It's producing already um, multiple shifts in how we live, where we live, what we worry about, how we organize. Um, technology, I think, is also somewhat obvious. Um, you know, technology has forced massive shifts as well. Um, but I focused it on how violent non-state actors advance their interests for a couple of reasons. One is just my background. Um, you know, my background is, an, is as an analyst and scholar focusing on violent non-state actors and um, how they use technology is, uh, is of intense interest to me. Um, the, um, I actually, Tom Johnson and I have a book coming out this year from Columbia University Press called Enemies Near and Far. And it's about um, the uh, learning processes of jihadist actors. One of the concepts that we um, that's at the center of that book, and I've, I've published on this independently already, so one can easily find this. It's the violent non-state actor technology adoption curve. And what it's showing is that violent non-state actors, when they first adopt a technology, usually disproportionately fail in the early stages. Our argument is that this shouldn't cause us to lose sight of this use of technology. Oftentimes, you know, a, a terrorist group or some other group will try to employ a new technology, will fail miserably, and then we lose sight of the plot. My argument in the violent non-state actor technology adoption curve is that what's actually happening is a process of learning. It's similar to what happens with startup companies and um, the MVP process or minimum viable production, where, um, or sorry, minimum viable product where the goal, especially the digital space, is to get a product to market, understand how the market reacts to it, and then pivot the product rapidly to adapt to what the market is looking for out of this particular product. Um, So my argument is that what we sometimes see as failure is a process of learning and iterating. So to me, this is a very interesting topic. And the way violent non-state actors are able to use technology is gonna have a, a massive impact on political organizing, in part because a lot of political organizing, especially when it comes down to uh, new ways of organizing ourselves into political entities, is going to come down to how we wield violence, Uh, not necessarily wielding it offensively against others, but at the very least, wielding it defensively, so that as new um, methods of organization come into play, um, the uh, chances of the outside world Um, interfering with them decline if that entity is able to wield violence effectively in order to basically be left alone in its experiment. Uh, Then the final thing um, is just this intense interest of mine, microstates, because it's clear to me that at some point we will see microstates emerge. I think that, you know, we, we arguably have sort of seen the first rumblings of them, but not in the way that we will. Um, You know, especially, based on, on a number of different factors, and I outlined them before, your mobility, uh, polarization, people's inability to live with one another, um, and uh, the ability to, to digitally um, 
organize, we're going to see new quasi-sovereign entities emerge, different entities that claim uh, either sovereignty or at least autonomy, um, and where there'll be you know, this debate as to um, you know, whether they're good or bad, whether they should exist or not. We saw that to some extent um, you know, with the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone back in 2020, Chaz. I mean, at the time I, I said that it was both interesting, but also would be short-lived, which indeed it was. You know, once you had um, a couple of murders within Chaz, um, soon uh, law enforcement reasserted its authority over that area in Seattle. But um, to me, that's, um, you know, in a very small way, a harbinger of what is to come with respect to entities claiming autonomy or claiming sovereignty and being able to move people to a geographic space in an effort to get this to work. And why don't we discuss how these three important trends for the future were implemented into the game? Yeah. Um, so our games have an information environment that's represented by um, about four different things. One is a news feed. Um, the news feed is usually, and, and we're currently working with our partners at the University of Albany, um, you know, Gary Ackerman and his team at CART to build a digital wargaming platform. Right now we use, you know, a few different publicly available services like, um, you know, Slack and, um, you know, Google, Google Documents, Google Slides, um, and Zoom. Uh, but we're working to put them all together into a single platform. Uh, but at any rate, there's a news feed which represents um, the uh, information that all teams have available to them. Uh, usually it's on Google Slides. It includes tweets. Uh, it includes fake news articles. It includes screenshots of... Um, you know, CNN trolls, and it includes videos that we'll uh, often get from special guests. Uh, secondly, there's intelligence memos, which are memos specific to a team where only that team has that information. Um, you know, and, and everyone has their own intelligence these days, not just, you know, governments with intelligence agencies, but, you know, different social media companies and, you know, everyone in essence has their own internal intelligence apparatus, um, you know, except for kind of the most basic of entities. Um, a third thing is uh, role players. Uh, role players will give briefings and will interact with teams in, in different capacities. Um, and then a fourth way that it's represented is through um, what we call, uh, you know, there's supplementary news documents, um, which, or news packets is what we call them, which is, uh, which is they consist of, longer articles that can't really fit in slides comfortably. Uh, so all of these represent it. And um, basically the plot lines are all kind of mixed up by date, right? When one looks at the newsfeed, one just sees things as they happen chronologically, um, as opposed to seeing kind of a story all put together in a single way. And what the teams are, are asked to do is basically to look at this and make sense of it within the contours of the victory conditions that are given to their team. Basically looking at the world and trying to understand from all these different sources <coughs> what's actually going on and to advance their interests. And as you can tell from how I'm describing the news environment, you know, parts of it will be <laughs> unreliable, right? Like 
as anyone who spent any time on Twitter knows, not every tweet is accurate. Um, now we, we kind of tend to limit the amount of outright disinformation, but what's happening in the information environment is going to be an approximation of, but not exactly what's happening in the world. Uh, so that's how we end up representing it uh, through all these different methods of storytelling in the game. And actually, when you read the report, there are examples of some of these um, imitation tweets and intelligent memo, intelligence memos, excuse me, I can't talk today, and breaking news items. I mean, looking at that, I thought, how much fun this must have been to create these. Could you talk a little bit about that, that creation process of these future events? Absolutely. And then I want to loop Maddie in because so Maddie... Um, came to Valens after we had already run this game. Um, and uh, then I brought her in as my co-author on the report because um, I thought she was, um, you know, a great person to to write this report with. And, and we had a great time working together, but she had the experience of like <laughs> immersing herself in the game. Um, and it was interesting to see her process of engaging with it and uh, recognizing just, how, you know, and, and coming to recognize just how interesting it was and becoming obsessed with different parts of the storyline. So I'll kick to her in a second, but, um, you know, it's a lot of fun to create, like all parts of this are fun, um, but what makes it cohere is the world building process, which I mentioned to you before. We try to make our worlds multi-layered. There are different um, characters that, we have pretty fully built out and understand who they are and what they want and what they're looking to build. And so it makes it easy to write around them and to, um, when we understand the core of what's going on in the world, it makes it easier to write from kind of even the journalist perspective, right? Each different um, journalistic outlet will have its own point of view, uh, at least subtly, um, and we'll have different ways of styling or framing issues. And we try to capture that. So what is in kind of BBC or Fox News or the American Conservative or the New Republic, those will all be very different points of view. And we'll try to write in the style of that publication uh, to capture these different prisms, um, including the moral prisms on what's going on. Um, and so you know, part of what we, <laughs> what we did for this game um, is, you know, there's a, a lot of focus on the culture of the world um, with this, one of my favorite characters, this character named Ellsworth Wickman, um, who, per, you know, among other things in this world, he, uh, and this isn't the only world where he produces this media, but it's one of them where it come, comes out. Um, he has this, um, a, a musical, a romantic comedy set in a gulag called Gulag the Musical, um, as well as a police procedural show kind of like, you know, SVU, um, which is called Inquisition. It's set in the Spanish Inquisition and the Inquisitors are actually the protagonists. So those are a couple of media artifacts. Um, you know, midway through the game, uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is elected president. This is actually, we, we ran this before all the polls came out saying, showing that Americans actually want him to be president. Uh, <laughs> so it worked out well. Um, and I, I crafted his entire cabinet, uh, which appears kind of midway through the game. Uh, Will Smith was the Secretary of State, which at this point may not be realistic, but, you know, I would still like to see Will Smith Secretary of State at some point, and, you know, he could, you know, slap other uh, diplomats, which would, you know, be helpful to U.S. interests overall. Um, and then there's also this kind of weird 
story, um, which kind of comes for full circle and is only becomes relevant at the end of the game about a high school janitor who ends up being canceled, uh, like basically a New York Times uh, writer. It's actually Ellsworth Wickman, the, uh, the, the creator of Inquisition and Gulag, the musical, who reads a, <laughs> an article in the East Lansing, in East Lansing High School's um, student newspaper about a janitor who loves heavy metal and writes an op-ed about how heavy metal is regressive and the janitor should be fired. And like, it becomes this major national controversy in the game world, ultimately like eating up more and more of the game world for reasons that just aren't clear to any of the teams. Uh, this is, I have to admit, it's just a very self-indulgent plot line, but one that I enjoyed. We even got Katie Pavlich from Fox News to uh, make a video uh, um, where she was outraged about uh, the canceling of Elro, the beloved high school janitor. Um, as I said, it becomes relevant at the end of the game, um, and also the middle when Google has to decide whether or not to hire him for their Ann Arbor office because he does get fired from East Lansing High School. But yeah, like all, all of these have their own logic to them, and um, similar to how we want it to be a world that people can hang out in and spend some time. I think kind of the more that we craft the characters and figure out how different plot lines intersect with one another and the life of different plot lines, uh, the more we also become, you know, take on different plot lines that we like and, and interact with. And as I, said, I want to kick it to Maddie, but I, I know that for Maddie, it came across with different plot lines just being unexpectedly interesting or um, with there being kind of this, these unusual levels of detail to certain aspects of the plot in the world. Oh, for sure. It, I won't lie, reading and trying to grasp and understand what was going on in Utopia coming in on the back end of it was a little bit of a chaotic experience. Um, but it, it truly is one of the things that I love most about working with our, our simulations practice group at Valens. Uh, I had a friend ask me the other day what uh, I, I did at work that day, and I kind of looked at her and said, well, I... I spent part of my day writing imitation tweets as LeBron James and CNN. What did you do? I got this look of just like, what is your job? Um, <laughs> but it's, it's one of the things that I love, the, the exercise of creativity and trying to create a world that's fun, that, that makes you laugh, that makes you enjoy it. it. David and I have been on many calls while writing this report where we both just end up laughing together about Ellsworth Wickman or the, the janitor Elro. Um, it actually, in one of our post-game surveys, we had a participant that commented, always love to hate Ellsworth Wickman. And that really stuck out to me of, you just completed a, a game that was, you know, intellectually complex, that you were interacting with other people, and you're commenting on a, a, a character that's fictional, but yet you, you have this engagement with him in a way that he feels real. Um, and I think it, it, it is a lot of fun and I, but at the same time, it's not just fun for the sake of a laugh, but it, it really is getting at this engagement of all of your brain that the, the storylines feel real, that they, they come to life in a new way that creates connection. And in the inner, uh, as the, the plots of the games connect um, you know, they're not just climate isn't just itself climate intersects with the technology and the technology and uh, connects with um, the, the formation of microstates. And so I think it's this weaving together of 
like strong narrative and characters that engage your emotion and that allow you to love the game um, as I came to love Utopia and Ellsworth and the plot lines here that also contributes to this kind of beautiful world that is built that that really does get at something deeper and it, it it's unlike anything I ever experienced in college. And as you just mentioned, Madison, it's creating this world that does get at something deeper. And aside from all the fun that it sounds like it was to go about this process, create this world, create the characters, why don't we discuss the meat and bones of this study, the best practices that came about from doing this game, like the recommendations that you have for policymakers, decision planners and defense planners and et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. We we basically looked at our best practices across five different um, points in time relative to creation of a game. Uh, we look at best practices with respect to conception, with respect to game research, with respect to game design, gameplay, and data capture. Again, with the idea being how best can, not just how do we best design games, but how can games be most useful in enhancing the aspect in enhancing aspects of future studies? And here I, I would turn to to Maddie's description of um, Jim Dater's uh, school of thought. Um, you know, as as Maddie outlined, he has four uh, alternative futures, and his view is that these are the only four futures um, that. Uh, exist, that when we project out the future, it actually falls within one of the four categories that he has. Um, and, you know, I, I talked to, to Jarris Grove about this, Maddie and I did. And, um, you know, Jer the, the four futures were created decades ago. And Jarris said, you know, people try to create new categories, but to him, um, actually still the four categories data outlined um, still represent um, you know, basically all the futures that, that one can come up with. It still can be categorized within, categorized within one of those four. But what Grove um, emphasized is that to him, as a scholar of futures studies, he's not trying to predict the future. Rather, he's trying to unsettle people's ideas about the future. And, and I highlight that because that in part is what what our game goes towards creating a compelling image of the future that can produce useful thought about it and ultimately unsettle people's ideas about the future uh, we have a lot of different best practices um but I'll, I'll outline a few of them because i think that it gets to what i had talked about at the outset that the thing that we invested in most has been world building so um, in terms of game conception, the second best practice that we outline is that stories and narratives matter. Um, how do you just talked about, and I, I really actually love that participant comment. Uh, she talked about uh, the participant who said, you know, love to hate Ellsworth Wickman as one of the, the as one of his post-game uh, remarks. And it's absolutely true that like the area where people most engage is through stories, through characters, and you can see how we do that in our own, um, you know, in our own engagement in the world. Um, if you think about um, 
you know, um, for any kind of major, you know, major set of events, whether it's a revolution or a war or a protest, it's individual stories that really make up the cause, right? So um, the Arab Spring revolutions, it was the, um, the street vendor who um, allegedly got slapped by a policewoman. She denies that she ever did that and then um, set himself on fire. And, you know, he, there'd been dozens of people in Tunisia who'd immolated themselves actually in that period. But this was the, the narrative that really caught on that ended up driving a revolution and upending the entire region. Um, uh, George Floyd and that awful, um, that awful set of events caught on camera and how that galvanized people in a way uh, that previous racially charged police shootings had not. Uh, you know, the, so stories and narratives matter. And we found in our games, it's things like, you know, The Rock being elected president or the U.S. State Department team being super excited that they're working for Will Smith or, um, you know, Ellsworth Wickman and, um, you know, his, um, you know, not only his, uh, the media he's creating, but also him being this annoying Twitter presence, which is a thorn in the side to a variety of teams. Um, all of that um, results in the games being much more uh, real uh, to people. Um, a few other best practices. Um, one for game conception as well is to explore both mega trends and also weak signals. Um, mega trends are you know, very obvious trends that are going to affect the world, whereas a weak signal is something that today might seem at the margins of what's going to affect us, but tomorrow um, could change the world. Um, and you know, if you think of a weak signal, it could be H1N1, say circa 2008. Um, you know, we're about 12 years away at that point from COVID-19 shutting everything down. Um, but you know, as an American, you could safely ignore H1N1 at that time and think that it's something that's happening over there. Um, the most important issues we contend with in the medium to long term are likely going to be a mix of what today can be described as megatrends and weak signals. Um, so even if a game doesn't select the weak signals that actually become the most strategically important, the game can make an important point by presenting a mix of megatrends and weak signals as central to the game world. In that way, it will teach participants that they should pay attention to both megatrends and also weak signals when trying to comprehend the world. Another best practice I'll mention, um, and, and then uh, um, uh, I'd, I'd love to, to see if there's anything that for Maddie stood out with respect to best practices, but um, in terms of research for the game, we highlight that the research needs to address the paradox of futurism that it must appear ridiculous at first while also being grounded in rigorous research. So Maddie and I recommended addressing this paradox by beginning with basic research into relevant trends that the game will explore while also engaging with relevant subject matter experts prior to extrapolating the futures that the game builds. To us, rooting creative extrapolation about the future in knowledge of the present will help to ensure that projections are not too bounded by current assumptions while also guarding against aspects of the game that would be simply unrealistic in a way that detracts from gameplay. 
Um, so we put a lot of time into to kind of articulating how to deal with that paradox of futurism. And it was you know, really interesting to work through. And in practice, um, it manifested itself, for example, in, um, you know, there's a, uh, the game features the collapse of the kingdom of Jordan um, due to um, climate change induced extreme weather. Um, and we actually, you know, the way that we tried to ground realism along with um, sort of very forward leaning um, extrapolation of trends was we worked with um, you know, a very knowledgeable um, individual, a, a retired uh, Jordanian general officer to model out you know, what would this collapse look like with different um, uh, communities um, rising up and challenging the central government. Um, this is, again, is an area where a friend of mine, a British academic, um, who first got to know me when playing this game, uh, he went to uh, or a Jordanian colleague of his who is part of the faculty and asked her um, at his university and asked her, uh, what do you think of this scenario? And her response, uh, he told me, was, yeah, this is basically how it would occur. Um, and like, I think that's what he was sold on our gaming methodology, that there's this, you know, um, set of events that could seem fantastical, perhaps, from today's perspective, the Jordanian state collapsing, but it's being modeled out in a way where, you know, from locality to locality, and the way different power structures are breaking down, it very much um, exemplifies um, likely, likely possibilities of where these different fault lines would occur within Jordanian society as climate pressure fundamentally challenged that society. So those are a few of the best practices I would highlight, and I'd love to get Maddie's as well. Sure, I would highlight uh, two other things. One that stood out to me that was particularly distinct from uh, a simulation that I had participated in at my university was the inclusion of different teams. So in the Utopia game, the inclusion of Google. Uh, I think oftentimes we play games that just focus on state actors, but the world that we live in, uh, you know, non-state actors and even private corporations have increasing amounts of, of power and ability to influence uh, the world. And so including non-traditional teams, I think is really important for a more holistic look at the society that we live in. Um, and the second was, and some of this is in the, the refereeing and the adjudication of different moves, but highlighting consequences that may seem surprising. So the, the climate trend um, in this game, uh, Elon Musk has this hashtag, save the universe, um, and invests in new companies and corporations um, that find innovative solutions to the current climate crisis. And after the time jump, uh, you find out that the campaign actually worked. Like there is a reversal of some of the negative effects of climate change. And so I think one, oftentimes our, our projections about the future are negative of what is, you know, trending south will continue to, and this game challenged that. But the other thing that was really interesting to me was not all the characters in the game world saw the reversal of climate change of being a good thing. There's a eco-terrorist group, Guardians of the Earth, that respond negatively to this Save the Universe campaign because the, the solutions were a little bit of a band-aid. They didn't actually address some of the deeper problems, and they saw it as 
a means of, well, you just kind of slapped a Band-Aid on it. It's not, you're not actually getting at kind of the heart issue here. And so this actually maybe isn't the best thing when the rest of the world is celebrating, like, look at us, we've actually, you know, saved our universe. And so challenging this assumption that what is good is good for everybody and what is bad is bad for everybody, I think was a really interesting kind of theme that was drawn out subtly in the game. Um, but that is also important to kind of consider uh, a multitude of pr perspectives and getting at this idea of not everybody's going to interpret the same events um, in, a, in a positive or negative way uniformly. I want to give you the opportunity to have final thoughts or maybe touch on something that we might not have touched on, but I also will recommend listeners, if you're interested in this topic, to read the report. Um, it's, it's really, really interesting. And like I said, um, not the conventional way of looking at these issue, issues, which I really like. I think it's opening up the horizon. And as we were saying, it's sort of a way of the future. Thanks so much, Chelsea. Uh, I think I'll, I'll concentrate on, on one thing and uh, one thing only um, in my closing thoughts, um, which is in, in addition to re reaching, reading the report, there's another method of engagement. Um, I'll certainly extend this invite uh, to you as well, Chelsea, that for listeners who are out there for whom this sounds interesting and something they want to get to know better, when we run games, uh, we typically include special guests in our games. Um, often these are uh, practitioners or, you know, people who otherwise uh, we think are kind of interesting to include in the mix. Uh, Mubin Sheikh has been one of our most prolific special guests. He really enjoys Valen's games and uh, will always uh, tweet about them when he's playing in them. Uh, Mubin Sheikh being, uh, uh, you know, just the... <laughs> I described him in our games as an institution in his own right. He um, worked on the Toronto 18 case um, back in, in 2006. Um, he has been involved in, in prevention work um, across a range of ideological causes. Just this really um, interesting, brilliant guy who um, adds a lot at every time he plays. Um, Heidi Byrick, um, who's one of the uh, top U.S. experts on white supremacist extremism participated in a recent game we had that looked at, at the white nationalist takeover of a uh, small uh, town uh, in, in Canada um, and multiple others. Um, you know, we, we've had so many different people play and we want to give as many people as possible a, a look at our games. We've even created a separate set of rules for practitioners um, that is designed to make um, their involvement less burdensome, basically where they'll be briefed uh, by their team members so they can get up to speed quickly without having to read the entirety of the information environment. And they can help with top line decisions. And then if they want to, they don't have to stick around for finessing the language and hammering out negotiations. Basically, it's placed them in the role sort of as executives because you know, um, those who've had the experience of being executives within government or elsewhere know that when you're in that position, um, that's what you do. You, you're not kind of reading every tweet and reading every news article. You're getting read in on a top line. You're able to um, apply your wisdom uh, and then move on to the next matter. Uh, so I'd say anyone for whom this sounds interesting, feel free to reach out to me. You know, my email address should be pretty easy to find. David at valensglobal.com. You can also reach out to me through Chelsea. Um, and if you want to play in a game, 
um, I, we'd, we'd be happy to find a good game to include you so you can get a look at, at the methodology uh, that we employ. That would be the big thing I would offer up as closing thoughts um, to make this not just theoretical, but also to offer up um, engagement for your listeners. Madison? It, it might be a, a potentially selfish uh, final thought, um, but I think one of the things that was interesting as I talked to David as we finished the study was I am deeply curious to see how my experience of working on this report really early on in my career. And again, thank you, Chelsea and David for, for highlighting me at this stage of my career. I, I truly appreciate it. But I'm, I'm interested in the way that kind of building this um, habit of strategic foresight, of, of thinking about futurism, of this being really early on in my career, I'm, I'm interested in the way that that's gonna impact how I, I look at ver a variety of issues. I think this was something that wasn't necessarily taught or trained into me um, in my undergrad experience. Um, but um, as, as was mentioned at the beginning, I'm now working on our domestic extremism portfolio. And even as I dig into this issue set, I'm, I'm often thinking, okay, how do I think at the intersection of the ridiculous and the possible? Um, I have Dater and Cornish and Grove in my mind. Um, and so I think it, it's subtle, but this habit of, of thinking about uh, issues in a way that's slightly outside the box um, of having kind of a long-term uh, perspective, I think is really fascinating. I'm interesting to, interested to see how that develops over the course of my career. Um, and I'm just really grateful for uh, the opportunity to work on this and to think um, in a new way. Well, this has been another fantastic discussion. So thank you so much, David and Madison, for talking about this really, really interesting study, game, all the background research and theory that goes into it. Um, like I said, for our listeners, if you want to do the deep dive, read the report. If you want to get involved, reach out to David, as he said, and just thank you so much for coming on the show, both of you. Thank you, Chelsea. Congratulations again on the great run that the Loopcast has had and for making it the uh, institution in the national security world that it is and deserves to be. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you, Madison, also for coming on the show. And best of luck to you because you're on the verge of spreading your wings, it sounds like, which is fantastic. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. It's, it's exciting to kind of be at the beginning and to look forward to, to what could be. Exactly. Actually, you're not even on the verge. You are spreading your wings as we <laughs> speak. So there you go. Well, thank you so much, both of you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you.